This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number eight of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and this episode is another special edition. This time, it's all about RX Swift. So to answer your questions and discuss your topics, I've invited two RxSwift experts to join me on the show. First up, we have Marin Todorov, who is a consultant within Apple's platforms. He works with Realm, Ray Vandalish, and others. And he's the co-author of Ray Vandalish's book about RxSwift. Welcome to the show, Marin. Hey, John. How are you? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> Excited about this episode. That's awesome. Yeah, me too. We also have another guest because uh, when we do these special editions, we like to you know, double up on the number of guests. And the second guest this week is also a co-author of Ray Vandalish's book about Rx Swift. He is also an iOS and macOS freelancer who sometimes ventures into the land of Android and server-side development as well. It's Florent Pillet. Welcome to the show, Florent. Yeah, hi, John. Glad to be with you. Yeah, happy to have you. Did I get your name right? Yeah, perfect. Oh, that's awesome. I've had some training. <laughs> <laughs> so I think before we start, and before we start diving into all the questions and topics that have been submitted, uh, I think it would be great for us to just explain RxSwift a little bit and talk a little bit about what it's about and what the problems that it's trying to solve. Because not everybody who's listening to this uh, has used RxSwift and might be curious, what is the fuss all about? So, what is Rx Swift really? Well, Rx Swift is a um... <laughs> yeah. So it's a it's a framework for writing asynchronous event based uh, code. So it deals with a with a couple of things that are they're increasing complexity in in programs quite a bit. So it deals with asynchronicity, and um, it deals with uh, reactiveness. So it helps you to uh, basically write a code that is very, very, first of all, stable, uh, expressive, uh, and also helps you with uh, dealing with asynchronous uh, mutable state. So this you might have heard about this, um, you know, around on Twitter or, or conferences. Uh, and, you know, people think, you know, sometimes they just mention that this is bad. Um, however, it's not bad. It's just uh, part of your programs. And RxSwift makes you, you know, deal with this, a little bit easier in, in a little bit more deterministic way. Yeah, I would say um, I'm pretty much agree with you, Marin. Um, asynchronous programming is the, the things we deal more and more every day uh, in our programmers' lives. Uh, I mean by that that everything is becoming totally asynchronous. Everything you do, uh, network requests, user events, um, anything is asynchronous by nature. So uh, reactive programming is just uh, a way to take a step further on that and, and uh, model your code uh, in a way that you react to events and you react to things, uh, to results of things you order. And then um, it's totally natural, for example, for web programmers. Web developers are used to that kind of stuff. Um, iOS developers, not so much because mainly uh, the delegate pattern uh, popularized by Apple is uh, something different. But uh, really, uh, reactive programming is just asynchronicity, dealing with asynchronous stuff. Yeah. 
Because as apps get more and more complex, I mean, if you go back and you kind of take a command line app and you can kind of look at that as the kind of simplest app you can make, you just have input output, it's all synchronous, uh, it all, all just happens kind of on one thread or one process. And then you go over to the modern kind of iOS and Android and all other kind of platforms, uh, applications, which you know, as you guys say, it's we have a lot of states, we are uh, downloading things, we are doing asynchronous heavy operations, and kind of trying to make sense of all those things can sometimes be really challenging, right? Well, yeah, it's it's not that we are, we, it's not that we cannot write good asynchronous code uh, with whatever comes out of the box on the Apple platform. I mean, this, the Apple provides us with, um, you know, the delegate patterns and they're built in everywhere in the, in the iOS SDK, in the Mac OS SDK. Uh, we have, uh, you know, um, good closures, we have Grand Central Dispatch. So there's a lot of tools that allow us to do this. Um, the thing is that, you know, each, each, of, each of those uh, works in a different way and kind of like you have to Know, wrap your mind around so many things, notification center, um, closures, and so forth. That um, you know, writing a, a, a big code base uh, becomes a, this this eternal dance in between patterns and so forth. And uh, ArcSwift is a uh, you know, it's a it's a good framework to rely on a single pattern that you can apply everywhere. And and for me, this is one of the biggest wins that uh, kind of like it's a, it's a stable it's a stable um, um, you know pattern that. Um, you can apply to just everything in your code that has to do with asynchronicity. Yeah. And Rx, it stands for reactive extensions, and it's not something that's unique to Swift. In fact, it's uh, I think it started on .NET, right, in C-sharp? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's Microsoft which uh, first popularized it in, in C-sharp, in .NET. Uh, and then there was the um, Rx Java, I guess, which was uh, built by Netflix. And uh, then it exploded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, actually, they, what they did is uh, they created the ReactiveX uh, um, specification, which is more a list of a way of doing things, uh, a list of operators. And this is a common language to several frameworks, which are RxJava, RxJS, uh, there's RxSwift. Um, there is Rx Kotlin if you want. Uh, there are lots of frameworks which adopt the same language and this is very good because um, you have a common way of modeling your events and your data and when you switch platforms and when you talk with other developers uh, you have the same language and that's fantastic. Yeah, it's really great. Uh, this is one thing that I've always tried to do in the past as well, uh, you know, without something like Rx but just try to standardize a little bit like the number of concepts that you have in your app across different platforms. It doesn't mean that you have to name your classes exactly the same, but to try to, like you say, speak a common language, because otherwise it's super hard to like be in meetings or talk to developers from other platforms in your company uh, when you're all like working in these completely different worlds. All right, so uh, that's a great little introduction to Rx um, and both of you, you've been uh, really involved kind of in the Rx community lately because you were uh, writing the Ray Vondelish book about Rx uh, together with uh, Junior Bontognali and Scott Gardner. So what was that like, like writing an entire book on this concept? Yeah, it, it was hard. Um, it was not very easy. It, it actually, it was quite a lot of work. Um, but um, yeah, joke aside, it's, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, demand for 
for materials and for examples and, and so forth because especially because what you just mentioned in the introduction that there's uh, you know there's been a lot of buzz around rx swift and uh you know there's there's a bunch of great people that are um writing blog posts and, and sharing um on github on, on on medium and so forth um but um there was no really a, a structured way to to start from the beginning and then learn to a certain level where you basically are are um able to write rx with apps and programs it was it was interesting to to you know team up with with others and uh, create this book uh, it was a lot of work and it's not the encyclopedia about rx swift but um i personally feel that it's uh you know when when somebody says where should i get started with rx swift this is the probably the the most relevant place after the repository itself of course which already includes a lot of examples if you really want a, a structured way where you can you know step by step build up that knowledge um this is probably the the, the best resource I'm, I'm i'm pretty proud i'm i'm, I'm not gonna be uh <laughs> I'm pretty proud of that, what, what we achieved. Now that's awesome. You should be. It's a great book. Uh, I spent some time during the summer reading through it. And yeah, it's really great. Lots of good examples and really nice, a really nice way to, to introduce the concept in kind of chunks that are digestible. Thanks. Yes. Um, writing the book was, was quite an experience for me because it was my first book. Uh, Marin is more next season writer. But um, the toughest thing is to explain the concept because if you look around on the web uh, and you look for explanation of what reactive programming is, you will find like 20 different ways of explaining it. And none of them uh, makes real sense at the first. So it's, it's difficult to figure out what, what is this about? Uh, what can I do with that and how can it help me? Is it something I want? You, you can't really tell from what you find on the web. And this is one of the reasons why uh, we wrote this book. It's because there was no real good resource to learn about it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So how did this kind of band, this group come together? Uh, all of you kind of working in different countries and in different projects. How did you kind of decide to sit down together, or I guess not physically, but over the internet, sit down together and write this book? Like it, it all started, um, kind of started at the um, AltConf a couple of years ago, where um, Scott was giving an Rx Swift presentation at AltConf, and uh, Ray was also there, and uh, he got somewhat excited about like the concept and you know the things that Scott was showing up on um, screen, and uh, they got to they got to talk about it, but uh, and then we were, you know, basically polling for for potential authors, but uh, um, it was a rather busy period for for everyone who we initially, you know, spoke to. Uh, and, and it it kind of, the, the, the team came around from all of these uh, talks at conferences, basically. So uh, me and Florent met in Berlin at um, the, uh, there was an Apple talk. Uh, then me and, and Junior um, met at a couple of conferences um, the period the year before and then Scott and, and, and myself met in San Francisco and uh, at other events so uh, it kind of like really this 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 like conference community connections that are that are being built um, in person kind of like worked together and brought everybody uh, kind of like last autumn 
back again and then we started writing and then it was really went really crazy <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah i can imagine and i really love to hear stories like this because this is the major reason why i love conferences so much that you know i get to meet all kinds of different people and these kind of you know, relationships form where you can start doing things together. I mean, just look at the three of us. We also met at conferences, and that's probably the reason why we're doing this podcast. <laughs> so it's it's really great. And I think that's, uh, you know, some people think, I guess, sometimes that you go to conferences mostly for talks. But for me, talks are really just setting the stage. The rest is just the conversations that happen before and after and dur like during the day. Yeah, totally. That's the people you encounter at, at conferences, which is uh, which brings all the value to you because uh, the people you meet, uh, the, the people you talk to, uh, also make a lot of the experience and and um, the new ideas you 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 go back home with. Uh, it's like Eric Swift, Eric Swift. We we talked about it at conferences. We talked over Slack because there is a lot of activity on the Eric Swift Slack. And uh, it was really great to meet uh, this group of people. Even though the, the, the biggest challenge, I guess, to write this book was to beat uh, the Xcode and Swift release cycle. Because uh, since Swift evolved so fast and Xcode evolved so fast, that uh, we, we really had no choice on act fast and write fast before you know, our own uh, code was out, out of date. <laughs> yeah, it's like chasing, it's chasing a bullet train. Yeah. Awesome. All right, uh, what do you say? Should we start diving into our questions and topics? Shoot. All right, let's do it. So as you know, this show is all about answering questions and discussing topics that were submitted by the listeners. And it's really the backbone of the show. So everyone who keeps sending in questions and topics and you know, pinging me on Twitter and being curious and giving feedback about the show, uh, big, big thank you. Uh, this is really the reason I, I'm doing the show and all the guests that come on and everything that's happened. So uh, it's really, really awesome. So to kick things off uh, for this episode, uh, we're going to start with a question from Johan. And Johan asks us to talk about how do you get started with Rx Swift? Where do you go when you want to learn Rx Swift, but you haven't really used it before? What's a good place to start? Let me mention a couple of things and then I'll hand it off to Florent. Um, I think that the uh, most the most appropriate place, of course, is to go to the Eric Swift uh, repository on GitHub. And um, sometimes people just kind of like um, waltz across the readme and uh, you know try to um, look for some code. But actually, the repository includes a lot of documentation um, found in the uh, documentation folder. And that documentation has you know um, basically a bunch of articles that are. Uh, discussing what is it, how to use it, um, <clears throat> they go over you know, some of the core concepts and things like this. So if you really want to um, start with the basics, that's a great place to go. Uh, and once you've consulted the uh, documentation included with the repo, there's also a very good and very detailed example app. And I often see that people are just ignoring that uh, and looking for other resources but actually there is a really really good example app in the repo so this should be probably the second step to take um, after uh, reading through the docs um, try the, the demo app for a spin and see kind of like what are you know few um, base examples that you, that you know you can you can play with and you can see the code written by the uh, library author so 
<clears throat> not by uh, somebody on the internet that um, you know just figured it out, but like actually from the people who have put the code together. Yeah. So I think these are the first two steps uh, to take. Nice. Uh, those are really good steps. Uh, we'll make sure to put links in the show notes to both of those things and to the repo itself so people can go and check it out. And I think it's a really good point to um, to kind of start with, I mean, reading is great and people learn in different kinds of ways. But for me, it's, it's the same as what you mentioned. Like, if there's an example app, I love just cloning it and start playing around with it, messing with the code, seeing how it works, because that's a great way to not only learn what the APIs are and how to use them, but kind of how they work and to see how they're being used in practice. Yeah. Um, read the book. I mean, really. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's something, um, that's one of the reasons why we wrote it, but uh, read the book and, and take it one step at a time. Learning Eric Swift is, is it's a path. It's not something, it's not like an API you look at and you understand what it does and just, you know, use it. Uh, it's really a path, it's a state of mind, that's something that draws on you. It really takes uh, some time to learn, it takes some time to understand the concepts. Some people go faster with that, some people go slower, nobody's equal with that. But you know, uh, the, the main thing is that take your time, take your time to understand the concepts uh, and to understand what you can do with that. What's explained on the, on the repo is, is very good. Uh, there is a very good uh, blog post by Adam Borek who has uh, an excellent blog about Eric Swift and he has a bunch of links as well on this where you can, you can pick and go. Um, but really, take your time. That's the first thing I say to new uh, learners. Yeah, that's a really good point because something like Eric Swift is kind of huge in a way and I think it can be a bit intimidating if you try to learn everything at once and you try to like understand all the concepts at once. Precisely. I've, 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 uh, you know, I've talked to to a number of people who who think that um, starting with Eric Swift means starting a new project from scratch, uh, built only with RX, uh, and they kind of like try to, you know, take it all in um, at, at at one time, and and this is you know really overwhelming because there actually there's no need for it. Um, I think that the perfect um, thing to do to get started is just to take one view controller and and connect a couple of things and you know make sure that understand how they work and then maybe expand to another view controller um, or if you're using MVVM just start with one view model and you know connect it with your view control and so forth and then expand from there if there is a need for more yeah yeah that's a really good point yeah and you can start small I mean start with data processing and start with network requests that the most obvious thing you can do uh, and then once you get your data from the network, um, you will learn how to uh, process it, mash it the way you need, and maybe distribute it in your application. But, you know, start small. Uh, don't try to do everything at once. I've seen projects failing because, and, and teams turning away from, from RxSwift because uh, they try to do everything in RxSwift first without understanding the concepts and without really grokking the framework. So take your time and, and start small. Yeah, yeah, that sounds really good. I think this is something that we can dive a little bit deeper into, actually. Uh, we have a topic on this exact topic uh, from a friend of the show, Marcin Krzyzanowski. Uh, he wants us to talk about that specific thing, about the learning curve. And I agree, I've also seen and heard from people who 
um, you know, they try to make like the whole app like one big Rx chain pretty much <laughs> with like, you know, maybe maybe there are some examples online where like you can solve things in a kind of elegant way where you can map and flat map and like build this like really complicated chain. Uh, but as you just said, like there's really no need to start there and maybe a more kind of simple solution where you just try to solve one problem at a time uh, can be a lot more approachable. Yeah, just to sum up what, what all my thoughts about this are, is, is uh, um, a few times people have, have asked me, uh, usually at events, like um, for for how many things in my in my app should I use Rx Swift? And my kind of like my opinion about this is that you should use Rx up until the point uh, to which it decreases the complexity for you and that project. And if you like surpass this point and you're, and you're applying it more and more to your app in which uh, complexity for you personally is actually increasing instead of decreasing that's it really doesn't make a point to you know uh, keep doing that so uh, I would say that uh, you know um, use it just as much as you really need it to uh, to be there yeah because there's definitely a coolness factor here, I think, where, you know, when something gets trendy, like RX Swift, you know, you don't want to be the person who misses out. So you, you're kind of looking for ways where you can use it rather than maybe looking for problems or having a problem that RX Swift actually solves in a nice way. So rather than taking RX Swift and applying it just because you want to or because you heard that it's cool, um, it's probably better to start in the angle of, like I have a problem here that I'm trying to solve and Rx seems like a good tool to solve that problem. That's exactly the way I approached it at first. Uh, when, I get, when I got into reactive programming, I had um, kind of a hairy issue, which was uh, sending multiple requests to a server to get uh, album playlists and artists and arrays of records and tracks and stuff. And I was kind of uh, asking myself, how am I going to do this thing? And I couldn't figure out a simple way. And then uh, I, I thought, okay, I heard about reactive programming. Let's try and see if it can solve this problem for me. And it did. I mean, it was beautiful. In, in a couple of pages of code, I had something that was very complicated to do. And, and it worked all the time. It worked fantastically well. And then it, it gave me the knack for, you know, uh, it was an incentive to learn more because it really solved problems for me. So. Rx uh, is, is just a tool. It's a tool that you can apply to your problems. Um, you shouldn't look it uh, the other way around. It's really a tool and don't use it if you don't need to, but try to, uh, to look at it in a, in a problem-solving perspective. Yeah, absolutely. That's really good advice. Great, so let's move over to the next topic, which comes from Aina Yain, and she asks us to talk about how to write tests for code that uses Rx Swift. So do you have any tips around how code that uses Rx can become easily testable? Yeah, um, <clears throat> a, couple of, a couple of hints in there that I have on top of my mind um, related to what I said earlier. Um, when you when you write uh, so when you use the native um, tools that Apple gives you to solve asynchronous problems, you have notification center, uh, you have closures, you have delegate patterns, uh, you have um, you know all these kind of tools 
uh, okay, performing selectors, maybe that's not really the, the most favorite tool uh, anymore, but you know, <laughs> they have this, all these different ways to, to perform asynchronous tasks. Yeah. And so for each of these, you kind of like need to um, have a different approach when also when testing because they work differently. Uh, and I think that the great thing about testing RX Swift is that there's one pattern, the observable pattern, and that's it. So, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what, it, what exactly what the precise feature is, is actually achieving, you can, uh, you can test it in exactly the same way. So this is one of the, the biggest um, you know, gains for me. Uh, for for testing RX Swift code, and so since um, you can use um, the tools that are provided with RX Swift for testing, uh, this, it becomes very easy. So uh, you have observables that emit values, and so um, the the test tools for RX Swift allow you to record these values, and so actually testing RX Swift code becomes uh, you know it boils down to recording what some the values that something emits and comparing uh, those results to, to you know, some predefined results that you're expecting. So kind of like testing becomes just uh, just uh, listening for, for emitted values and comparing them to, to uh, you know, what you expect. And it doesn't matter what your code exactly does, um, you can always apply the same testing pattern to it. Yeah, and uh, well, Marin is a test expert, but I would say that uh, <laughs> I would say that um, mostly observables uh, in reactive programming, observables are more, mostly a contract. Uh, so when you say that when a function returns an observable which delivers integer values, for example, it's a contract. And the very cool thing is that you can easily mock it because. Uh, the contract says you're going to get an integer or more integers later. Fine. So I can just mock it easily because I can replace the real thing with uh, with mock, uh, and the code the code that uses it won't see the difference, which is great because you are programming by contract and you can replace uh, things very very easily if you if you segment your application uh, the right way. So testing is I find easier uh, with Rx. Uh, because of the contract than without. Great. Yeah, it sounds like a, a nice way to set up the kind of given this, then do this, then assert this, right? And you can just perform your operations and then um, collect all the data from the observables and then just assert that the values that were collected match your expectation, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, in a way. Um, but, I mean, don't get me wrong, there is a learning curve there. Um, it, it's not really, you know, um, and maybe just to open a um, you know a, a bracket in here, um, a couple of years ago I was to to visiting a, a, a town in Poland called Poznań, and I was talking to a developer, and I kind of like was reminiscing like how Objective C, how difficult it was to start with Objective C, like some ten years ago when I was starting with Objective C, uh, because the syntax is so different. And then and then this guy he was like, no, Objective C is so easy. I just I just picked it up and started um, you know programming apps with it because it's so easy to pick up and so forth and so forth. So I was in total shock. Like, how is this possible? <laughs> and uh, you know the thing is that this was his first programming language, so he didn't have he, his mind was not set into you know how how code looks like and how how it works. You know, kind of like Objective C was his first uh, kind of like programming language, and the concepts were just how things are so he didn't have his mindset into something else so you know it's the same with rx swift 
if, if it's your first technology, um, you know, you wouldn't be set on how things should be done differently. Um, so it's, it's only difficult for us if we already have enough experience with another language that works differently and so another concept. So, you know, like if you're really used to write code, code, uh, test code with, with um, exit test, uh, then it might feel difficult for you to start with the Rx testing. But it's just only because you expect things to be in a, in a certain way. Um, but if you kind of like a, if you have a, if you have a clean slate, if you're like most iOS developers that don't write tests, <laughs> uh, <laughs> then it actually might feel uh, easy. You know, like it's something to give a try. Uh, so just, just uh, you know, your random thought about like complexity and learning curves. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's all about kind of what you're expecting and and what you've been used to so far. Yeah, learning new stuff is always a matter of perspective. Uh, it's like when you when you learn Swift. I mean. Um, when I first approached Swift, uh, it was a functional language. So I thought, why not look at functional languages first? Then I learned the basics of Haskell and Erlang. Um, not some things I, I would use, not languages I would use every day, but it gives you a perspective. And when you get into Swift, it's easier. So it's the same thing for Rx. Look at you know different implementations, other platforms, other languages. And the concepts are the same, so um, it just opens your mind. Yeah, that sounds really good. All right, so next one comes from Florian, uh, who asks uh, us to talk about debugging and stack traces. So this is something common that you hear when people are talking about RxSwift and kind of being a little bit skeptical about it. They're saying, you know, it's much harder to debug, uh, you know, you don't have a stack trace anywhere and you're just stuck in the middle of these observables and you don't know what's going on. So do you guys have any tips on how to avoid that situation and how can Rx Swift code be more easily debuggable? Um, yeah, you don't, you don't have um, the traditional stack trace that you're used to because basically everything is asynchronous. So um, you, don't, you don't have this, like you have the stack trace um, you know, really clear in Xcode if you, you know, use the so-called imperative code. So if, if you use synchronous imperative code, you will have a, a very good stack trace. However, if you are using a lot of callbacks uh, from callbacks and so forth, then you will also have quite a mingled stack trace and whenever you like hit a breakpoint in there. Um, other than that, I'm not really sure. Um, you can always have breakpoints in any of your code, so um, you can always break at a point that you're interested in. Um, you don't have the stack trace, but you do have your code. Um, so I'm not. I'm, I really don't feel that it's such a pain to to debug um, Rx code. I'm I'm not completely sure. Uh, maybe maybe when you're new to it um, and you're not really sure how all the operators work, then uh, just that. Um, just that insecurity in what exactly is happening um, might be more confusing when you don't have the stack trace in Xcode. Uh, but I think that with the time, it really becomes um, easier and easier uh, to you know figure out what's going on. Yeah, I think I think what this might be coming from a little bit is if you go somewhere like in in a code base where Rx Swift has been heavily used and a lot of the advanced features, and you see something like you know, load data, flat map to this, map to this, cache, cache that, and everything is kind of just one line and you don't really know where to put your breakpoint and where to, you know, where to start, like how do I decipher this? So Florent, do you have any tips on how to like avoid that situation or, or if, if you encounter something like that, like how should you start kind of 
looking at it? Yeah, I have I have two ways of debugging. It's true that stack traces are useless in RxSwift. Uh, when one of my first presentations uh, at the time was about reactive cocoa and Objective C, and I showed a stack trace which was gigantic. And the stack traces are always gigantic because there there are a lot of code paths you're not interested into. I mean that's internal to RxSwift, so you won't use stack traces most of the time. You can find uh, the needle in the haystack. If you find uh, the right closure, that was at some point, but it's not always the case. So I mostly rely on breakpoints. Um, I put breakpoints in, in closures. I use the debug operator. The debug operator is very useful because it, it lets you log um, uh, everything that goes through um, a sequence. So if you have an observable, you can uh, print out everything that goes through it. And it helps a lot when you have some very specific things to debug. Uh, my other technique is to log a lot. I do, I do use logging a lot. Uh, I, I even wrote a tool for that. Uh, and it's really something I rely on because uh, due to the asynchronous nature of RxSwift and interactive programming in general, you have to have uh, a tool that lets you uh, do a post-mortem on what happened. And logging is, in my, in my view, the best way to do this. So when you say logging, I assume you're not talking just about print, but you're talking about something more sophisticated, like you wrote NSLogger, right? The tool that you mentioned. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I use NSLogger every day. It's, it's, it's a great tool for me because uh, I log so much. Uh, and the reason I log so much is that I like to be able to go back and pick what I'm interested into in all the output that the program emitted. So it's very cool because you can go back in time. Um, I've seen some interesting examples and interesting ways to debug uh, reactive code, which was to record uh, all the, the data that goes through the observables. Um, I know that some platforms like RxJS have tools for that. Um, we don't have something similar with RxSwift yet. Uh, I hope we can improve on the debugging situation because it's something that's not easy for beginners. So yeah, there is, you know, margin for progress. Well, to be honest, um, last year, me and Grunoslav, who is the main uh, contributor to ArcSwift, uh, we whipped out together quickly a visual debugger for ArcSwift. So, you know, it, it just runs um, and listens for um, observables that you decide to, to track and builds a timeline with all the values that they emit. But it didn't really feel like there was a lot of interest, um, so kind of like uh, left it out there in the in the ArcSwift repo um, without updating it um, anymore. But I mean, it's there. It was just a quick quick job on on uh, just putting very limited hours into it. So if there is you know if there is raising interest, we could just uh, at any point decide to to um, you know bring it up from the dead. Cool. I've also seen some people use this to kind of uh, implement um, like an undo stack. You know, if you like record all the values, you can then go back in time and you can like undo uh, your way back. Yes, yes, this is uh, time travel debugging. Yeah, that's very cool. Time traveling is always cool. <laughs> <laughs> 
Awesome. So if we should sum it up there, uh, it sounds like you're saying that uh, don't rely too much on stack traces because they will usually not give the information that you're looking for. Instead, use logging, either just print or use a more sophisticated tool like NSLogger. And debug, debug operator. And a debug operator, exactly. Perfect. Um, all right, next topic comes from Mukesh Tavani. And he wants, it to, wants us to discuss some famous apps that are using RxSwift. So what are some of the big names that are going in on the RxSwift trend? So companies usually don't announce officially what kind of frameworks they use for their iOS apps. But um, recently, Orta added a feature to CocoaPods to show you uh, kind of like what what um, apps are using your framework if, if there is enough interest to, to that and that's using a third-party website called AppSite. So thanks to this uh, chain of events um, I quickly dug up some names to give you if that's um, interesting uh, of apps that are using RxSwift in production and, and these are apps again provided by this third party called AppSite. Um, I guess they just download all free apps on the App Store and just uh, you know dismantle them and check what kind of frameworks they're they're included in the bundle. Um, so we can't give you details how they use it, but uh, you know we know some apps that do use it. So um, I have a list here. I'm just going to run through it. So Uber, Uber Eats, and Uber Driver and Uber Freight are using um, Arc Swift. Then comes BlaBlaCar, um, another car sharing service um, on the App Store. Um, then we have Kick, one of the biggest social frameworks. Uh, we have ABC Network, ABC News 4, and more apps from the ABC um, network. We have Bloomberg Business Week uh, running on RxSwift. We have um, some apps from Disney Channel, uh, CBS, um, HSBC, the bank, um, Hyatt Hotels. Um, there's um, services like SurveyMonkey, Mint, um, Hootsuite, FreshBooks, Dropbox, Paper. Um, I noticed also Headspace, which is one of the nice apps about meditation. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of different um, um, apps using RxSwift, and you know, like they they might be using the framework in very many different ways. So uh, we just know that it's it's been included in these apps. So they might just use it in like one screen, or or maybe they are building the whole app on RxSwift. There's no way to sell. Right. But it's safe to say that people are using it and it's being used in production. So uh, in case anyone is worried that you know they're, they're jumping in on something that is not really used, then that's not the case here. Oh yeah, definitely. You can just go to AppSite and it's, it's a free info um, and just check um, you know, kind of like the apps that are using it. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes to that as well. Yeah. One of the thing, one of the things I want to emphasize is that Eric Swift. One of the things that dragged me to Eric Swift at first is that it's extremely well tested. There is a huge test suite. Uh, it's really very stable. So that's something we can rely on. Yeah, that's always good. I always look for that as well when I look for open source projects. If you know, if you have an API in an open source project that is not tested, I feel like kind of it's almost like it's not supported because it might break at any point. Great. So finally, for our final topic uh, this week, uh, we are going to talk a little bit about the difference between Rx and Reactive Cocoa. So this is a very commonly asked question uh, whenever we talk about these type of frameworks, when there are 
two kind of, well, I don't know if we should call them competitors, but two uh, similar solutions to the same problem. So we have a question here from James Valantis, and he is asking, what is the fundamental difference in approaches to reactive programming between Rx and reactive Coco? Slowfront, you mentioned earlier that uh, you've been using reactive Coco a little bit as well. You were talking about it. Uh, so maybe you can give us a couple of things that are different between these two. Yes, actually, uh, I was a user of Reactive Coco way before Eric Swift because uh, I started in Objective-C. Um, when I moved to Swift, uh, Reactive Coco for Swift was not as good as Eric Swift, especially in the Coco object support, uh, so I switched. Um, but mainly, there are two things that differ between the two frameworks. Um, the first is that Reactive Coco makes a distinction between what we call hot and cold observables. A hot observable is something that always emits events, like a notification, for example. Uh, even if you don't listen to notifications, they emit something. Um, a cold observable is something that you start and gives you results later. Um, we don't make the difference in RxWift because we, we don't feel like it's worth it. It's all the same. Um, the second major difference is that Reactive Coco uh, uses parameterized errors. So when you create a signal, which is the equivalent of an observable, um, you have to indicate which types of error it will emit. Um, that's one of the things that can limit you uh, later, especially when you mix uh, signals or observables that come with different types of errors. Uh, so, well, we again don't feel that uh, it's a really useful distinction at this point. Uh, so, I guess uh, it's pretty much it. The rest is, you know, uh, history because Reactive Coco is older and uh, it's been there for a long time, it's been rewritten several times. Uh, there is a very good team working in it as well. Uh, it's an excellent framework and I guess that it's mostly a matter of taste uh, for someone to pick one. Uh, mostly a matter of how do you like the API, how do you like the way they do things and, and what fits you best. That's as simple as that. Yeah, yeah, I always say, I should probably put this on a t-shirt because I keep saying it all the time. <laughs> but <laughs> I, um, my, my kind of way of looking at tech decisions like this, like should I use X or Y, I say it always comes down to a healthy mix between your personal preference and your requirements. So in this case, like if the requirements are that you need to solve asynchronous code and different signals and things like that in a, in a, in a nice way, you know, then you have these two frameworks and maybe a couple of different other solutions kind of competing. And, you know, really which one you choose is the one you feel fits the problem the best and also which one you just happen to like the most. And that's fine. Yeah, and then it makes no difference because um, what's important is the, the, your state of mind, is the way you architect your code. Um, one of the things with reactive programming, it makes you think differently. Um, when I started working with that, I totally changed the way I think about code, and this is what matters. And this is the new view you have on your work, uh, the, the different perspective, and, and you know, the rest is just a tool. Yeah, well put. Yeah, I've, I've, you know, sometimes it's also there is just a little bit of luck in the mix. Uh, the, depends on like when you when you make your research, what's gonna pop up higher on, on Google when you when you research the topic. So, uh, you know, if you're researching, you know, um, alternatives uh, alternative solutions to the same problem, that uh, you know something might just feel uh, just feel randomly better at the moment. So. 
Well, there is also luck in the mix as well. And there is the community as well, I guess. Um, the Eric Swift community is really wide and, and very active. We have the we actually have an organization on GitHub which is Eric Swift Community, which has forty projects uh, currently, and it's it's very cool because we see a lot of things pop up and we see a lot of frameworks uh, coming around and helping you Ericify your your applications. So uh, that's very nice to have so many people do that, and 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 the Slack the Slack is very active as well. Um, there are I think I counted three thousand seven hundred members. Um, that's a lot, and there are 500 weekly users. So you know that's really very active. Sometimes it's it's even uh, mind-boggling. But you know, it's very cool to see so many people getting into reactive programming, even if they're just passing. Sometimes some some people don't stick. Uh, they don't keep uh, the RX uh, way of doing things. But that's cool. You know, I hope they learn something in the process. It's true. It's when when I was starting with Eric Swift. Um, funny enough, I ended up, I kind of like ended up more times on Microsoft's websites where where they explain everything about Rx. So this was one thing that really impressed me. That um, you know, on on Microsoft's website when they speak about uh, .NET and C Sharp, I can learn the concept. So this was really it kind of like weighted heavily on my decision to go with Eric Swift, but also the fact that I could then, you know, ask in moderation, I really tried not to spam the Slack, but just to ask when, really when I couldn't move forward by myself. And there was, uh, you know, always somebody who would, um, you know, most of the times would uh, help me out. So uh, as, as Florent did, because Florent is, is, is writing reactive code much longer than myself. So uh, he was one of the first people who who helped me to to get the concept and and start learning on my own. So, you know, it's it's important. Um, it's it's both luck and in community kind of. Yeah, yeah, that sums it up nicely, I think. Awesome. So that's all of our topics for this episode. I want to thank everybody who, again who sent in both questions and topics. And if you want to send in a question or topic for an upcoming episode, you can do so by either going to swiftbysundell.com slash podcast, where there's a form where you can submit your question or topic, or you can just tweet it to at swiftbysundell on Twitter. On the next episode, uh, my guest is going to be Paul Hudson. Paul Hudson, he makes a really awesome website called Hacking with Swift, where you can learn about Swift and there's blog posts and all kinds of different cool stuff. Um, he also recently launched an initiative called the Swift Community Awards, where he wants to kind of highlight uh, people and websites and efforts around the community to kind of increase the knowledge about Swift. And he's also writing a book about SpriteKit. So I think that's going to be super interesting to hear about as well. So if you have any questions or topics that you'd like me and Paul to talk about on the next episode, make sure to send them in. We've uh, reached the end of this episode now, so all that remains is for me to thank you very much, Marin and Florent, for being on the show. No, no, thank you. Thank you, John, for inviting us. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Yes, thank you, John. Thanks a lot. And I hope we could, you know, give it a, a test of what, what being involved in Eric's is. Yeah, I think it was a really, really good episode. And I think, yeah, lots of great information. I certainly learned a lot, so... I'm probably just going to close, uh, close down here now and go write some Rx code. 
<laughs> Excellent. <laughs> See you on the Slack. <laughs> See you on the Slack. So uh, you mentioned the book now a couple of times that you've been writing. So if people want to check this book out, where should they go? Um, I think if you write RX Swift book in Google, that should be the first uh, result uh, popping up. But uh, if you need a, a, a better URL, that's uh, raywenlig.com uh, slash products slash RX Swift. Yeah, there'll be a link in the show notes to that as well. Okay, cool. Um, and um, and so right now it's covering RxSwift 3.6 in Xcode 8, <coughs> which is the latest uh, stable version of RxSwift. But um, recently RxSwift 4 uh, for Swift 4 uh, has released a release candidate. So we expect RxSwift 4 to be out real soon. So we are actually working right now on the update of the book for RxSwift 4. Uh, and then that's going to be a... a as with all the books on raywindlick.com, it's going to be a free update for all uh, owners of the digital version. So if you have, John, uh, the previous version, the, the latest current version of the book, you then uh, get the next one as well for free. Oh, that's amazing. That's awesome. Great. And if people want to find you online, where should they go? To find me, uh, you go to underplot.com. That's underplot.com. Uh, and there's all my contacts are in there. Great. And what about you, Florent? Um, I don't have a blog. <laughs> That's a shame. Um, I'm usually on Twitter, uh, on GitHub, and on the, on the RX with Slack. Um, I'm FPLET, F-P-I-L-L-E-T, and, you know, just find me everywhere. Awesome. You can find everything about this podcast and about the weekly Swift blog at swiftbysundell.com, and you can also follow me on Twitter at John Sundell. Thanks so much for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you on the next episode.